This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. We've launched a brand new Let It Roll website at the same old URL, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's a complete archive of all of our 350-plus shows, sorted by season, miniseries, co-host, guest, genre, and era. It's also a great way to support the show. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber if you can afford it. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at LetItRollCast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ed Legg continue their discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became pop's blockbuster year, with a look at what classic rock artists like Foreigner, Journey, and the Eagles vets Don Henley and Glenn Fry were up to. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say 80s roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. Welcoming back Ed Legg to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's Can't Slow Down, How 1984 Became Pop's Blockbuster Year. This week, we're focusing on Chapter 17, which is set at EMI Records in New York City on November 13th, 1984, which I have in my notes. It's 1954 for some reason. It must be a Freudian slip. But we're going to zero in, Ed on what the classic rockers were doing in 1984. And just like for everybody else, it was a big year for the classic rock world. Ed, were you immersed in the classic rock world? Well, I, I feel like um, I, I'm, I was a willing and, and avid participant. And this, this, is a, this is quite a fascinating read, this chapter, because he really covers the map. Yeah, he he he. As usual, he covers a lot of ground and covers it well. And and you know, I've I've been feeling guilty about being so hard on Bruce Springsteen last time, and I've yeah. been going back and listening to Bruce and just like I feel like if everybody or so many people appreciate something and I don't, I'm the one that's missing out. It's not that I'm smarter <laughs> or cooler or better. It's that I just am failing to appreciate it. And this whole chapter is stuff. That for the most part, I utterly failed to appreciate at the time <laughs> with a couple of exceptions. But I've made peace with all this stuff. It's funny that I 
still beef about Springsteen. So apologies to all the Springsteen <laughs> fans for last time. But let's dive right in. He zooms right in on Mick Jones. Not that Mick Jones, not the guy from The Clash and Big Audio Dynamite, but the other guy, the one who sold a lot more records, the leader of Foreigner, former Spooky Tooth uh, main man, Spooky Tooth, a late 60s British blues revival act that uh, had their... Definitely had their moments. Spooky too is as an album uh, that that I spent some time with. But at this point in time, Lou Graham, the lead singer, is worried about the direction of Foreigner. Should he have been Ed? Was Foreigner going in the wrong down the wrong well, road? The, the the fact that they existed in 1984 is kind of astounding. I mean, that's one of what's. What kind of fascinates me is that he, and I don't want to spoil anything, but he, you know, the first two examples he picks are, I mean, I kind of can understand, I could see the, the, it was hard not, it was hard to miss Journey. Um, it was, they, and I tried. You know, <laughs> I worked hard. <laughs> or the Calcils, as Beavis and Butthead referred to them. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, Foreigner is a little, well, I mean, Foreigner did, was a year earlier. Than journey or you know when they broke big in my you know in my my field house which i was at a field house when i saw them and journey but um I saw but, it, but it's yes i did which was better I, that's a that's that's a answer that needs to be qualified which i can i can i'll say this um foreigner was a different band the first year first two albums i mean they had ian mcdonald from king crimson Yep, who was a multi-instrumentalist. They were basically like a funk orchestra live. Nothing like their record. Their, I didn't. I hated their first record. I bought it thinking it was going to be great. I didn't like it. I see them um, in the second slot for a three slot with Ted Nugent headlining, and they were fantastic. They hmm. sounded great live. And then I see them again at a festival in, a, in another, that was two months later at the end of the summer of 77. And again, they just hauled ass live. Hmm. And and it really fun. They were like Saturday Night Live's band, you know that that kind of feel with with the guitar, but horns too. But but he eventually fired Ian McDonald and I think the bass the original bass player. But um and they went more toward hard rock. So I I really like them. Journey we'll get to because I, I didn't I see, see them. I didn't see Journey till '78. So. For whatever reason, I was seven when Foreigner's first album came out, and my older brother had it and didn't like it much, and and left yep. it to me, <laughs> and I loved it, and I was oddly fascinated wow. with their commercial success as a seven year old. Like, wow. I was I was tracking all the singles, I was looking at the at the record, you know, and and their first two albums, both of them, I was I was less a fan of their music than I was of their chart success and, and the number of songs that they had on the radio. I, I still to this day can't explain what my fascination or concern with, you know, their hit singles was, but you know, they had feels like the first time they had cold yep. as ice, uh, yep. and then hot blooded, you know, uh, that was off the mm -hmm. second album and then double vision. Yep. I mean, and then I felt like dirty white boy was, a little over the line. That song made me uncomfortable. <laughs> I didn't like hearing it in the car with my mom. But, uh, um, but you know, I was there for that 70s part of Foreigner's Journey. But by the 80s, Steph wants me to give a shout out to Jukebox Hero, which was an you unavoidable, go. you know, massive yeah. classic uh, hit. But 
um, by the time I want to know what love is was coming out, I'm not even sure I knew that was foreigner. I just knew it was everywhere. And I was taking, (laughs) I was taking driver's ed and I was in a car with three popular girls and this coach and they were listening to that and and the uh, Steve Perry song we'll be discussing later nonstop and very excitedly talking about both songs. And I, at the time, I was just baffled as to how anybody could appreciate I Want to Know What Love Is. But now I can totally get into it. I actually enjoy going back and getting into it. And it's all because of Boogie Nights. And we'll get to Sister Christian in a little bit. But once I realized the key to enjoying this stuff, I didn't have to do what was they were doing in boogie nights to enjoy sister Christian. I just put myself in that mindset and imagined <laughs> that I was indulging and, 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 you know, the Colombian, uh, nose powder. And that's what I thought the scene he meant. That is the best scene. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it, you know, for years I had been baffled, like, how does anybody enjoy this crap? I just could not understand <laughs> it. Like, what is going on? What am I missing? Like, cause some people, you know, people love this stuff. And I, I was just yeah. completely, completely unable to connect until I saw the dude in the bathrobe with the nine millimeter or whatever. And, and, you know, and the, and the, the, the flower all over his face. And, and then I was, aha, they're all on cocaine. <laughs> I don't think the girls in my driver's ed class were, but somehow they were just in that vibe, uh, you know, naturally. Yeah. But but <laughs> Matos does a pretty interesting job of discussing the song. And also, he, he has a great line. He says, uh, for the rock press, the idea that Foreigner had a fan base seemed absurd on its face. <laughs> I thought that was just really gets to the nut of the issue here, that the that. For whatever reason, the rock critics and the people who read rock critics just felt that this kind of – I don't even – I guess you'd call it classic rock. I mean it's not Jimi Hendrix or the Stones. It's not actually classic rock, but it it was this thing that became what they put on classic rock radio when they invented the format, which was around this time. But let's go ahead and hear it. This is uh, this is the song that made Amit Erdogan, the Atlantic Records legend – Breakdown in tears of joy when uh, Mick Jones first played it for him. This is Foreigner. I want to know what love is. that was foreigner i want to know what love is and i hope that i got the part that matos was talking about where lou graham uh sings a certain line in a, in a very uh powerful emotional way and that and that uh matos described it as as um you know this incredibly powerful shocking moment i believe is what yes what he said in my so, life yeah it's uh, yeah this record shocked people and lou graham singing of <laughs> in my life is why and so I wasn't shocked by it. It just seemed like it was inescapable. It was like I, but uh, but you know, it definitely did have a huge impact and was was a new thing. I don't know. And the background he does on this, like I had no idea 
that they worked with Trevor Horn for three months on a fail and completely trashed the whole session. You know, wasted a quarter of a year on that. Bring in Alex Sadkin, who had produced the Thompson Twins Platinum into the gap. And also, this is pretty clever of Matos because I, if I remember correctly, he didn't get much. Uh, he didn't get into the Thompson Twins very much in his British Invasion chapter, but they were definitely a big part of the scene. And and turns out Tom Bailey plays the four note synth part on I Want to Know What Love Is. So so many ca- connections I was not expecting. The failed connection with Trevor Horn, and then the successful connection with Alex Sadkin and the Thompson Twins. So much more to the story than I expected. Did you have any idea this made Amit Erdogan weep? Well, I wonder if he wept because he was thinking back 15 years to 1969 when he was with five guys who I like to call the Rolling Stones, who were in Muscle Shoals recording Brown Sugar and and uh, You Gotta Move. And he's comparing that moment to uh, to this one and thinking, what in, the, what in God's name is, have we done to this music? <laughs> <laughs> or he's just thinking about all the money this is going to make him. Well, they, <laughs> that's probably, that's more accurate. There you go. I mean, or maybe yeah, but, he'd been doing plenty of the Columbia nose powder himself and, <laughs> and was right in that state. Cause he was a man about town. Our Amit Erdogan was. <laughs> that's true. That's true. He was, he was very worldly. Yeah. And, and in an era when, you know, cocaine, I, I guess lubricated is the wrong metaphor, but when cocaine yeah. dusted the the record industry liberally, but yeah, now this was I don't know I found this all fascinating. I knew I knew almost none of this stuff about the background of foreigner, and I, and I think Montes does a really good job. I mean that whole thing of pointing out. I mean, and maybe the rock press was right to hate Foreigner. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. It's hard for me to say. But the music has lasted. Like in the 80s, I was just so sure that Journey and Foreigner was all going to be swept away and forgotten when some joyous day came and and all, you know, when when Jesus came back and all rights were wrong (laughs) or wrongs were righted and everything. And for a minute, when seems like or smells like Teen Spirit broke, it Mm. did seem that way. And then grunge turns into the worst thing that ever happened. And, and you know, my kids are now singing Journey songs at, you know, school events in fifth grade. It's just become, you know, the new, I don't know, you know, Jimmy Crack or whatever. It's like American <laughs> classics. <laughs> I've given up on any kind of aesthetic. Uh, I'm not a rock critic. I, I just have no idea how to decide what I think of anything or what people ought to think of anything. But the facts are facts. Agent Provocateur sold 3 million copies. Uh, I want to know what love is. Even charted R&B. It knocked Like a Virgin off of uh, as out of the number one slot. And it was their first ever number one. I can't believe it. I mean – no. Double Vision wasn't the number one. Cold as Ice wasn't the number one. Like, yeah. Oh well, you know. But it did ultimately lead to breaking up the band. So I guess there's some justice, some justice out there. <laughs> but now we come to Journey. So now tell us how was Journey when you saw him live? Well, they had just added Steve Perry, and you know when I say just, I saw him. Actually, I saw the. Famous tour with Journey headlining Montrose, the middle act, and then Van Halen opening. And Van wow. Halen were, I mean, they were, Van Halen were unbelievable. I mean, they were, they were, you know, lean. They, this was definitely, 
it was all muscle. You know, there was no no, uh, no fat in that steak, you know, and, and yeah. I don't remember a thing about – I do not remember a note from Montrose, but I do remember a lot of the journey. I mean, they were – had Sammy yeah, Hagar think, already left Montrose by that point? I or? think he had. I'm pretty okay, sure yeah. he had. Yeah, once I looked it up. Ago. Yeah, I've looked at. I've just because I wondered about that. But um, Journey was. I mean, they were poised, you know. And and he clearly was a, a different. Um, you know, he was a very much a, a front man of a, of a sort, and was. And I and I you know hindsight sometimes makes me think. Okay, did I think this then, or did I just start thinking this when I finally saw videos of them and everything, but, um, they were such a prog band before that. And I mean, they go all the way back to Santana's Woodstock band. I mean, um, Ross yeah. Valerie, I think was and Greg Black magic woman, Greg Rowley. He's the, yes. He was, um, he was in Santana Rowley's the whole funny. time. Yeah. Neil Schoen and, was like the protege you know, boy wonder, uh, protege of, yeah. of Carlos Santana. And okay. I love that the manager's original vision was that the journey was going to be a state of the art, grateful dead, that that was their vision. <laughs> and they, they, it's, interesting I've heard there's, it's good. I mean, I, I actually almost listened to some of their first album last night and then didn't want to wake my wife up, but I, their those first couple albums were super prog, like hardcore. Like if Boston had really been less corporate, but hard rock, really soaring stuff. Yeah, yeah. My my older brother, who was into, you know, King Crimson and Yes and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. He he he. I don't remember him having those two albums. But I know friends of his did, but he respected them. So Journey was this band that yeah. had earned a yes. certain amount of prog cred, and then they add Steve Perry, who's essentially. The parallel is Dennis DeYoung of Sticks. Now, Sticks oh should there have been in this chapter because they, they, were, they were kicking it. They were kicking yeah. it that year. And I got to I got to tweak Michelangelo for this. That, that I mean, if you're going to cut anybody, <laughs> cut Sticks for God's sake. <laughs> but nonetheless, they were still hot off Mr. Roboto in 83. Mm -hmm. And they were going through a very similar dynamic to Journey where – Part of the band conceived of themselves as this hard rock slash prog act, very serious. The lead singer was this more like Broadway sort of type guy. And Dennis DeYoung was the same thing in Sticks. If you ever get a chance to watch the Sticks behind the music from the 90s, it's really hilarious. Um, I mean, it is it is it is highly recommended if you oh, like. Oh, that is fascinating. Uh, yeah. You, oh, what, it's. Uh, go ahead. They were on the both him, Tommy. I can't remember Tommy's last name, the guitar player who then was in the band, damn Yankees. Um, yeah. And both I'm him liking and, his last name too. Him and DeYoung both Tommy had Shaw. videos. Tommy, Tommy Shaw, Shaw and, and DeYoung both had videos that were in. And Tom, Tommy Shaw had a song on Miami Vice that fall. And, wow. And then Dennis DeYoung had a, a couple of pretty interesting, and I'd, I'd finally gotten that fall. I'd finally gotten MTV. And Dennis DeYoung even hosted a little of um, MTV, and it was—I mean, I just remember that. Yeah, yeah, they were definitely part of the of the scene, and and yeah, you know, I mean, that, and that's kind of an interesting thing about this book—the way he's done it. I mean, of course, he leads with you know Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, the big you know foursome, and also Cindy Lauper, Culture Club, other things. But there was so much yeah. going on this year, and this classic rock is just an 
you know, it's very similar to the sort of the Lionel Richie chapter of this is something that was also going on and was also making huge waves. But now I've just got to do this to you. I've got to play Steve Perry's Oh Sherry. And that was Steve Perry's solo breakthrough, Oh Sherry, which freed him from the journey uh, treadmill. And, and uh, yeah, it's really the high watermark of his solo career as well, but it was, it was quite a high watermark. And for me, as one of four people in a car taking driver's ed, driver, spending two hours driving around the country in this you know vehicle that had extra brakes on the passenger side so the coach could hit the brakes yeah. he needed to, which now that I'm giving driving lessons to my son, I certainly see the value of. But I was in there with literally two of the same girls that had informed me exceedingly callously of the death of John Lennon just a few years earlier. Oh, like. Yeah, like I, you know, in sixth grade, I wake up one awful morning, and and, and I had gone to bed early because I didn't care about the Buffalo Bills or whatever on Monday Night Football, so I didn't know what had happened. And these two are like talking about it without telling me; they're just talking to each other because I was beneath contempt, and then going on and on about how they never liked John Lennon anyway. And so I was having a similar sense of aesthetic horror when they were excitedly discussing the empty or the the Friday night video debut of Oh Sherry and how brilliantly clever it was when they break the fourth wall and Steve walks away from the pretentious medieval drama that, you know, sort of a thriller parody, I guess they were supposed to make knights and shining armor thing. And so, yeah, so I don't know a lot to overcome here, but I'm past it. I actually kind of get Steve Perry and the appeal now. So all is forgiven. And I'm not supposed to say this, but he's actually dear friends of a dear friend of mine because of uh, a group that they're anonymously in together that that can't be discussed. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but I've got it. And, <laughs> and, and, and the guy from Fishbone is the third person in that troika, believe it or not. <laughs> Angelo from Fishbone, Steve cool. Perry and my friend Kip are, are, are good friends um, because of of their mutual healing. So anyway. What do you have to add to the Steve Perry discussion? Well, I'm well believe believe it or not, I I was I I had new I had MTV and have you ever seen the follow up prequel to the Sherry video for the song Strung Out? I do um, not recall. Well, do you tell. can get a, it's it's on um, it's on YouTube because I sometimes this is a it's a it's a filthy pleasure, but <laughs> I sometimes <laughs> listen to it. I love wow, it. Wow, you're um, confessing some dark it, secrets here. It is the the last 45 I ever purchased was that fall. I'd heard him on a radio interview driving back from Atlanta to Columbus, Georgia, and um, and I'd say I saw the video a couple of times, and it's actually it's more of a Spinal Tap. There's a woman who's like the Fran Dresser uh, character in Spinal Tap, and that's but it makes fun of the video director, and but it's the prequel. To the Sherry video, it's when he meets the director of the Sherry medieval oh. video, 
Wow. And, um, but he's, he's got this band, he's got a band of guys. It's, I know that at least one did play the drums on the album because I know who the drummer was, but it's, it's, um, one of those macho kind of, we're practicing and let's blow these people away, you know, turn the volume way up. It's, you know, it's hokey. I love the song. It's just a good power, you know, hard rock, um, really good drumming, some really nice drum breaks. And I actually used to even later play the drums to it um, when I wasn't living in an apartment, but I've, and I still listen to it sometimes. And it's, it's a, it's a pretty long video because there's this big buildup when the, these people come in and they're, they're still practicing the hardworking rockers, hardworking 80 <laughs> rockers. Most of them have mullets, curly hair, and um, are wearing kerchiefs around their necks. So they look a lot like my band looked three years later. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I'd like to get your take. I mean, if you want to see what basically how our leader of our band acted, his bass player acts very similar. And I mean, there's, there's even flourishes in this. This is how ridiculous there's flourishes of guys taking long tokes off their cigarettes and just, you know, a really big, you know, arena rock guitar solo and, um, et cetera. Just, just it's got it all is what you're saying. It does. It, <laughs> it does. And he's, it's a complete he's really, yes, it is. And he just, he was utterly charming on the radio and, you know, he was, he wouldn't, the radio guy asked, did you really do all those bad things to Sherry? And he's like, I'm not going to say. <laughs> and she's, I mean, she's a story too. I mean, she's still around and she's, I mean, she's fascinating too. Cause she was like this anonymous person, like in a, in a Julia Roberts movie. <laughs> Hey, so that's America's go. sweetheart you're talking about. Yeah, there uh, you go. I'm, I think I've basically dragged this thing right back to 1984, maybe even earlier. <laughs> that was the weird thing about this whole post-thriller era where they really felt that adding extraneous dialogue and drama to the videos was somehow enhancing the product. It's like... Mm-hmm. To, to this day, I still have. I want the music to start when the video starts. It, it annoys the shit out of me yeah. when, when, when there's a you know a lot of hoo ha. Like I, I dig a cool video. I am not you know like Joe Jackson or the replacements where video is bad. But I want the music and the video to start at the same time. I, I don't want a lot of of, of you know this, that is you know that Bowie video, the one from that fall. It, it's mentioned uh, that that one lasts forever. That's like some un- like a 17 minute video. I'm probably exaggerating, but that the Bowie video from that record, you know, not the not the last dance, but the next one that didn't have yeah. his greatest stuff. And uh, I just remember him. Somebody dressed blue in jean. a turban. Yes, blue, blue jean. jean. Yes. Yeah, blue jean. That, yeah. That not a terrible forever. song. Yeah, but the video yeah. was bad. It was like David Bowie yeah. and Mick Jagger were having a contest to see who could alienate their fans the fastest with bad videos. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. that, yeah, and and we'll talk about later in the the infamous dance in the street video. But um, but now we we've got a whole survey. Uh, Matos is going to survey kind of the, the the classic rockers in the landscape, and of course he's he pauses uh, to discuss Night Ranger, who. Uh, their, I guess Midnight Mad- Madness was their second album. 
and they they open their first single is you can still rock in america which didn't even make the top 50 and i can remember there was a kid in school who loved night ranger and journey and had been sort of a frenemy of mine uh from the beginning of elementary school and we really rode him hard about mr mister and 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 we were we would sing you can still rock in america every time he came into english class for like three or four weeks but then when sister christian broke big there was no more laughing about night ranger they had become to me this nightmarish plague that could not be stopped and but like I said, Boogie Nights then explained it all, and, and now I've, I'm at peace. I've been at peace for 25 years or whatever with Sister Christian and can now respect it as this actual, you know, this powerful piece of cultural creativity that impacted the world. Amen, brother. I heard, was, on, a heavy, I heard on a heavy metal the, – the heavy metal station in Orlando was where I first heard it. That was the context, and and – some of this stuff I didn't hear on the classic hits radio. Um, I was start, I was, I had a girlfriend in Orlando. I was visiting her sometime and they had this, I have never known if it was, I, it doesn't, I'm not sure it was an Abram station, you know, the, the consulting. Yeah, FM, yep. say, it was more hard rock. It had a lot more white snake and stuff like that. So, and that's, that was the context I heard that song. Well, in. you know why Night Ranger was in that kind of company? Why? Partly, partly because their guitar player had subbed for, when Randy Rhodes died, one of their uh. guitar players, and I'm blanking on the guy's name, actually jumped in and filled Randy Rhodes's massive shoes for to finish uh, that uh it wasn't the yep. Bishop of Oz tour. It was whatever the Diary of a Madman tour. And, and... The guy, the guy one-upped Eddie Van Halen, who did eight-finger tapping, because he did ten-finger tapping. Oh. So, if you read <laughs> Guitar Player magazine like I did faithfully every month, then you knew this guy was a serious, serious musician, not to be trifled with. And so that's why Night Ranger was on um, the Hard Rock Station. Because there you go. Yeah, yeah they were. Yeah. And so let's take a quick break from our sponsor. When we come back, we're going to be talking about more crimes against humanity. I'm talking about uh, the Peter Cetera, David Foster era of Chicago. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business. And I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And so, yeah, Night Ranger, I mean, other than Sister Christian, really is kind of a historical footnote. They didn't have a string of albums. And, and, and you know, the thing about this is it seemed at the time like this kind of classic rock was never going to go away. Um, but they're <laughs> knocking them off. Matos is knocking them off one by one. Like the seeds of Lou Graham and Mick Jones's parting have been sown by I Want to Know What Love Is. Journey is already broken up because of the solo success of Steve Perry. So, and then Night Ranger's just a passing thing, not a true uh, permanent menace. But Chicago and this alliance with David Foster, and David Foster came up last time uh, or two times ago because he was um, talking to Lionel Richie. And, or he produced Lionel Richie. Sorry, my, my daughter's getting a text here and shouldn't have her phone open. So, uh, you know, but. Anyway, that's that's. But David Foster is this guy. I've actually watched a whole documentary about David Foster. He's this producer. He comes out. His first big break was working with Earth, Wind, and Fire, which you'd think would give him some cred, but then he goes on to like the Peter Cetera era of Chicago, and that's yeah. like so typical of his work, and that stuff. Boy, did I hate that stuff at the time. And I had no concept of the earlier Chicago era. It wasn't until I went to college and met people who grew up in Chicago or the Chicagoland area who would talk about 
classic rock Chicago the way we would talk about ZZ Top, and I was completely baffled. But that's a real thing. If you were in the Midwest in the early 70s, Chicago was one of the legendary rock bands. Yeah, I had and, no progr- and highly prized. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, go you, ahead, I, go ahead. I, I mean, because I was maybe because I was in marching band, but I mean, their first four or five albums were really he- heavy. Their first album has some of that, some Hendrix style guitar from Terry Kath. And um, they were they were almost like a hard rock band. They certainly they didn't do anything like this stuff. It did start to seep in. And like by 74, they were starting to do kind of more um Saturday Park. stuff. Is that what you're Yes. Thinking? Yes. You're right. Yeah, good call, man. Yeah, Actually, I that like was, that song, but but I, uh, I do too. That album that that album was I think that's five. And I think that's the one that followed live at Carnegie Hall is the one that I one of the and I mean I was a sixth grader and saved up and bought that four album set. Wow. Studied it and and had it had came with three posters a giant poster of the band and then um and then a booklet <laughs> i mean it is was not the one where they have the whole thing where they get the crowd chanting we'll fight for change within this system or yeah that... i think yeah, it is. yeah. I, lester well, bangs went off on that in a big way as as this you know but honestly it's more sane than the weathermen you know i mean there you go they were up They've, have you, there was CNN, and I don't, I, I think Chicago produced it themselves, but there was a one, the year after, the year before or after they got in the Rock Hall of Fame, CNN ran a documentary, a rockumentary about them. And, um, CNN did. Wow. Yeah. Yes. It was, no, it was like they, and it was one of those weird times where you could buy time on, I think, on CNN. But it was, uh, and it was, they, at one point, one of the guys that's still in the band claims that they were never political. Well, that's bullshit. They had their first, one of the, one of the songs on their first album has the Chicago, the Chicago riots on, you know, the Democratic convention, the whole world's watching. And it's in, the song starts in time with the kids yelling, the whole world's watching. I mean, it gives me goosebumps. Yep, yep. They they saw themselves as part of the revolution, and within a few short years, they're saying we're going to have our revolution within this system. There you go, man. <laughs> and in a few more years, Terry Kath Kath will have killed himself. And um, yeah, and and you know, there is that one painfully long song on their second or third album where he does just basically free jazz solo. Yes, that's, yes, that's, that's the first one. Yes, that's yeah. the first album, yes. <laughs> yeah, but I do enjoy his solo work, like particularly on 24 or 6 to 1 or whatever the name of yeah. that. That yeah. one and, and the first Steely Dan album are some of my favorite uh, 70s, you know, rock guitar solos. But by this point, Kath has killed himself and Peter Cetera has become the band and is churning out things like hard habit to break and uh and he too is going to go solo in 1985 but chicago being the undead beast that they were by this point could not be stopped and kept going that's right it's astounding <laughs> yeah could. and that and that leads matos to this whole riff on whether or not the very facelessness of corporate rock made it an easier sell that that the, the blandness and and you know these are bands who never put their pictures on record labels and like when led zeppelin on the rec- record covers like when led zeppelin did that it was like a way to separate themselves from say the monkeys like we're not teen boppers we're not here for you to look at our 
tight pants on their album covers. You had to pay a concert ticket to see Robert Plant's Big Will in his tight pants. But, <laughs> you, you, you know, but it was some sort of art statement to not have the band on the album cover. And this lasts all the way through the 70s into the 80s. So that these, you know, Foreigner, Boston, Chicago, all these bands, you didn't know what they looked like. And if you're Super Tramp, boy, are you glad that people didn't know what you they didn't. looked like. You yeah. Know? But anyway, so it is. it does make it interesting to, to, to speculate that maybe, you know, they were so popular because they were essentially non-objectionable. And then he works in John Waite. And John Waite's one of these cats. Was he in The Babies or was it just called yes. Baby? yes. No, the babies. They were the babies. One of the babies ended up in Journey too. Oh wow! And, and keyboard player. Yeah. And and the, and the babies was a band. I think my older brother had like bought that album, or one of his friends had bought that album, just because it got so much hype. But then the hype backfired, and like the Rolling Stone record guide called them, I think the last train from Bloatsville before punk <laughs> hit. And so you know, yeah. John White's one of these guys who thought he was going to be a superstar. Had the big corporate backing, had the had the album that was a sure fire hit, and punk rock comes along and ruins everything for him. But seven years later, he's he's still plugging away, and he and he finally has his number one hit with "Missing You," which is yet another one of these songs that I just heard so much I I couldn't have a opinion about one way or the other. I mean, I thought I hated it at the time, but. I don't know. What's your take on Missing You? How does it stand up against the other classics we've been discussing? I mean, I liked it. I enjoyed it. You know, I, I didn't realize that he, when he sang it, he was kneeling and wearing his... Um, his, his Stripping uh, under his muscle tee. Yeah, yeah, his muscle tee. I mean, that's... that's and the guy looks like he weighs cool. about 118 pounds. Yes, very, very rock and roll. I think, in, I think he's English, um, but but definitely long hair rock and roll guy spiky hair. and there you go i mean i it was part of the it was part of the the rich uh the rich mosaic of <laughs> of, of music of that summer i mean i just it think definitely was that. yeah that summer i just there's certain songs that then that's one of them yeah and i i think of a lot of yeah i i definitely know a lot of people who were way into that song and then and then he then he segues into this whole little side riff about radio promotion at this time which despite all of the efforts since the late 50s to expunge payola which really seemed to only serve to expunge alan freed and quality music from the radio but by this point if you wanted to get your records played on the radio the record companies were basically being extorted by what a couple of books have cataloged were pretty much connected groups of people that that you know, uh, had just inserted themselves in the process. And if you wanted to get a song played on the radio, you had to pay, you know, the record labels were paying $25,000, $100,000 just to get a song broken in the L.A. market. You know, but our next tune that we're going to play, no way did they have to bribe people to play this one. This is Don Henley's Boys of Summer.
And that was Boys of Summer by Don Henley, which was quite a tune for the zeitgeist and a brilliant video. I was not an Eagles fan, but I could not deny. I mean, I watched that video every time it came on. That was just a classic stone cold classic. You know, there was no, no denying that Henley had touched multiple nerves with that video. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in contrast with Glenn Fry's floundering around, around this time, like his guest appearances on Miami vice, um, yeah. Did you, you remember that? Like he, he, he oh yeah, it, it was like somebody had stepped out of a time machine into Miami Vice because it was such a 1984 move TV show, and here comes 1973. Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean the the, the airline fly, pilot who practices in his hangar, in yes. his airline hangar. <laughs> yes, yes, and so you know Henley, I guess at this point checkmates Glenn Fry. Uh, and and you know uh, Danny Korchmar, who was a big part of that whole LA soft rock session mafia, had written the track for um, Boys of Summer. And again, it's a very 1984. I mean, it's a, yet another one of these 70s guys who gets his hands on the new tech and makes the yeah. sound du jour, you know. And and you know, and he's also on Geffen Records, which was a very hip label. Uh, hip's not quite the word, but a very powerful. Um, very 80s label, I would say, on, on its way up. Anything to add to the Don Henley, Glenn Fry? The, you know, the Hen- that Henley video was just, it's, I feel like it was wall to wall and that, like that summer and fall. Yeah. It just was like, you couldn't, you couldn't not see it if you turned on MTV. And, and I like it. I think it, it yeah. is strong. I think it's just very strong. I like it way better than. The one that all she does is do is dance, which I came, I think, came out later. Yeah, this is much better. This is much yeah. more art, just easy to watch than than that. Yeah, that it was thought, the follow up. It was like a cologne insert from a magazine coming to yes. life. Is, is what it was, and and but brilliantly done, and it really summed yeah. up that. Yeah. that moment in time you know but but um uh, matos also talks about howard stern who's emerging around this period and breaking like he's it's hard to think of howard stern as a music dj but that's what he originally was it just he he played less and less music as he went on and then he segues from there into the birth of the classic rock radio format which again not something you think of as being a construct as as a you know creation but it totally was and it sort of solved some of the problems that aor radio had been having that matos discussed at the beginning of the book and is an immediately an immediate success and i think is probably a big contributor to the fact to the reason why 84 was so singular because 85 86 87 the radio got worse and worse uh through that whole period and i think classic rock radio is a big part of the plague but we still need to talk about Robert Plant, who um, was uh, getting a fair bit of radio and video coverage with his um, – uh, now I'm forgetting um, – Sea of Love with, with yeah. the Honey Drippers. And, um, but he's mostly in this chapter just a bitch about people still playing Stairway to Heaven on the radio, which <laughs> – you know, and and then and then he he runs through sort of a rogues gallery. He being Matos runs through a rogues gallery of '70s artists who are getting dropped by their labels, like Van Morrison. Uh, Bob Dylan's not getting dropped, but he's definitely in a slump. Bonnie Raitt's dropped, and he alludes to her coming success in the later '80s. And then has a pretty interesting uh, little bit where he talks about 
Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead, who have written Touch of Grey, which is going to be their biggest hit single of their career. But they're not... I guess haven't even recorded it in the studio at this point, but they're already playing it live and it's a massive hit with their massive live audience. And, and he, he kind of compares and contrasts Lou Reed and Jerry Garcia in an interesting way through this whole thing. But did you catch the line about, um, it was, Oh, was it Joni Mitchell or no, no. It, who was the famous rock star woman who was dating Mickey Hart? Joan Baez. It was Joan Baez yeah. who was dating Mickey Hart, yeah. the second drummer <laughs> yeah. of the dead, drops in a session and it's so dire and awful. She's like, what was that? And Mickey Hart goes, that was a contact low. <laughs> low. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then, and there, and Kreutzmann, while he's, when he's not uh, snorting cocaine that a roadie gave him while they're on stage, he has to tell Jerry that they're on stage. Yes, even though Jerry's playing all the right notes. Yes. But yeah, and and, this, and it is sad, and it ultimately leads to Jerry Garcia's death. I mean, this is a guy who was this immense creative force in the 60s and 70s who carved out a completely unique career path for the dead that, that you know, nobody, I mean, carved out a massively successful path by trying to avoid being massively successful. Um, but in the end, you know, became a junkie and, and just, you know, a, a diabetic junkie, like just ran himself completely to the ground. Meanwhile, Lou Reed's uh, seeking out air supplies producer John Jansen because he loves the sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you have it. <laughs> yeah. There you have it. That says everything, doesn't it? <laughs> it really does. Lou Reed's one of these characters that, you know, my introduction to him basically came from reading it. I mean, from hearing the the well, you know, one thing Matos should have talked about, I think, was because one of the big albums for me in this year was that unreleased Velvet Underground album, VU, that was supposed to be, I guess, their fourth MGM album and didn't come out at the time. And it's just a great five star album. It has the ocean, foggy notion. I can't stand it anymore. So I was way into the Velvet Underground this year. It's just, you know, playing it right in there with my meat puppets and Black Flag stuff. And, um, you know, but was totally oblivious to Lou Reed's current career at the time. And so it was interesting. I know I have a really off color story from uh, You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again about the Eagles, if you want to go back to Don Henley. Bring Green, it on. Green, so so this is the Heidi Fly Scrolls, right? Like she was the Hollywood madam and got a bunch of publicity, got arrested. And somebody publishes this book of interviews with women who claim to have worked for Heidi Flies and to have been, you know, sex workers in the Hollywood milieu in the 70s and 80s, or I guess mostly in the 80s. And Don Simpson, the movie producer, is like the villain of almost every story, like the most traumatic thing yeah. that ever happened to any of these women. It was always Don Simpson. Mm -hmm. We won't go into that. But Glenn wow. Fry and Don Henley are both in the book. And I can't decide which one's creepier or more gross apparently allegedly this is you know i have no way of knowing if this is true or not but it was published in a book henley liked to have multiple women bend over a couch and he would go back and forth between them and oh, and, and they would all be telling him how great he was don you're the greatest oh, you're the God. greatest right and so that's sick and pathetic because the guy's this massive rock star he shouldn't you know but then glenn fry would pay women to come to his house allegedly again allegedly for candlelight romantic dinners, which is sicker and more pathetic. Like, 
paying the rental company for a romantic dinner or paying three or four young women to dehumanize themselves and, and yeah. you know sing your praises anyway that that's what being, being a rock star, that ed we're lucky we didn't we didn't we avoided that fate that this is why i could our, not agree more man yeah because that does being a rock star does bad bad things to people but yeah. let's hear our final tune and and uh i had to pick this one there were a lot of other choices uh, in this chapter but i went with hollow notes out of touch And that was Hollow Notes Out of Touch, which I kind of picked because Mothos has this pretty interesting backstory of the creation of that record. And, you know, Daryl Hall is seen as the whole act of Hollow Notes. And John Oates is seen as, I mean, there was literally a group called Garfunkel and Oates, uh, uh, as, you know, like this is how big of a second banana John Oates is. But Out, <laughs> out of Touch was, uh, was apparently mostly written by Oates. He had the first verse. The chorus, the whole bit, basically records the whole track, leaves the studio. Daryl Hall comes in and adds the the hook, <laughs> and then takes <laughs> over the lead vocals, and it's a massive hit, you know. And when Oates insisted on singing his other song, Possession Obsession, it flopped. So, you know, that's kind of the chemistry. And I don't know. I've got a lot more respect for John Oates now that I know more about his career than I did in the '80s. But I think that. The thing that Mata zeroes in on is that during the dark days of 80 to 82, which, you know, he talks about at the beginning of the book, this really fallow period for pop radio, that Hollow Notes was for a time, quote, they were the only reliably lively thing on the radio. And that is so true. Maneater, that just yep. great. Yep, that's the one I think of. Yep. That's the one that comes to my mind, too. Yep, and and it's weird that they were working with Arthur Baker, who had co-produced uh, Africa Bambata's Planet Rock, and was at this point just you know smoking hot producer and remixer. And of course, he's working um, uh, not only with Hollow Notes, but also the dreaded Mick Jagger solo album that um, <laughs> <laughs> that is gonna is gonna kill Mick Jagger as a solo artist forever. Well, I guess he got to put out two albums, but, you know, Jagger had negotiated one of the biggest record contracts in history, and there was so much hype and so much weight, and it didn't it didn't succeed. So, yeah. you know, so there, there you go. And, and then Matos wraps the chapter with a look at Paul McCartney, who's embarrassing himself this year with give my regards to broad street. Have you ever seen this film? You know, what's strange is I think I saw it with a date who loved it and actually went and bought the record. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and I didn't mind it, but I read a review of it. I think it was in cream magazine. If I, if it's, I, I'm pretty sure. And there's a scene in the movie where Paul later says to somebody that, Oh yeah, when we were shooting that, we were getting ready to go to 
we were getting ready to eat dinner and I was really thinking about that. And the, and the reviewer goes, and you could tell by the music that that's what he was thinking about. And I mean, so it was, and then I think that's the review that uh, I remember. I think that it's gotta be that one that um, the, the reviewer bemoans, you know, I can't believe the same guy that wrote band on the run, you know, it was kind of like that, but I mean, well, he was, also wrote was, eat at home. Let's not forget he, oh, there you <laughs> he go. Wrote a song called Eat at Home <laughs> on the Ram album that Peter Bagg, the cartoonist, uh, oh. lavishly illustrated at some point. And I didn't know the song existed. I thought Peter Bagg had made up the perfect parody Paul and Linda McCartney song, Let's Eat at Home. Oh. <laughs> it turns out it was a real song. I also oh. didn't know he had recorded a version of Mary Had a Little Lamb and put it out as a single. So, yeah. Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah. But I did like the fact that that it was either Gene Siskel or Roger Ebert panned the movie to his face. And Sir yes. Paul, who wasn't Sir Paul yet, but he took umbrage at that. But within yep. a week, he spotted in the theater heckling his own film. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess that's the difference between Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger is that, is that Paul can laugh at himself. And, and yeah, yeah, there you can, go cannot so <laughs> we kind of jumped in the chapter there's a couple other pieces i wanted to hit he he when he when uh, matos talks about the eagle or the former eagles glenn fry and don henley and matos did not include the off-color story i added by the way he was much more tasteful sure. probably hasn't read you'll never make love in this town again because he's a decent person and not a disgusting pig like myself but he mentions that fleetwood mac the other kings of california rock which had been declared uh Rolling Stone magazine had declared California rock loser and one of the year's losers in 1982. So what, you know, at this point, if Rolling Stone notices you're not hip, you are not hip. Yeah. <laughs> like that mag was definitely not hip at that point. Um, but Fleetwood Mac's totally in remission, except for Stevie Nicks. Uh, well, kind of, sort of, um, but who's way lost in, in La La Land. And then he and then he goes through and kind of segues from that into a discussion of other female rockers, Pat Benatar, who has a massive hit with Love is a Battlefield, uh, co-written and produced by Neil Spider Geraldo, her husband or boyfriend. But but this was something I didn't know of at the time was that her record label was really down on her being pregnant and having a baby and made her hide it, made her go back out on the road right away. And she had looked at the pretenders Chrissy Hind as her role model because she knew that Chrissy Hind had had a baby by Ray Davis of the Kinks and kept, you know, kept the show on the road and then was doing it again with Jim Kerr of Simple Minds, like announced that she was pregnant with his baby. And, and Pat Benhar actually had like come up to her, hey, you're doing it. How's this work? And and Chrissy Hind was like, well, I'm, you know. Try to, I'm struggling forward. I'm not really doing it, you know. But, so, but you know, Pat Benadar said that was a big inspiration to her, even though it wasn't easy news or good news. But it, you know, she could see Chrissy Hind was doing this and succeeding. But one last thing about the Pretenders was that their album "Learning to Crawl," which of course infamously produces the Rush Limbaugh theme song "Ohio." Oh um, God! Yeah, uh, but it was a big big album in the states that more 80, i guess it came out in 83 but but what matos points out is that it was completely seen as passe and and not happening in the uk which makes perfect sense mm -hmm. it got it, it they played the crap out of it and oh. classic hit station that i heard 
yeah, it was on sure. all the time that in 83, that spring. Yeah. And it was a pretty good, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was certainly not the worst thing on the radio. And and the thing about the pretenders, of course, is that they were recovering from the deaths of their bass player, Pete Farndon, and the brilliant guitarist, James Honeyman Scott, who was allegedly punched in the chest uh, by Ray Davis the night before he died of a heart attack. So really make of that what you will i did not know that wow yeah, apparently uh, ray davis had been yelling that the pretenders were opening for the kinks davis and chrissy hinder and item and davis is yelling at the pretenders road crew and james honeyman scott objected and said something to him and ray just gives him the old heart punch and oh, i'm not God. saying that he killed him i'm just saying the next day he died of a heart attack so mm. you know don't cross ray davis that's the the, the moral yeah. of the story there but um any final thoughts on the on the classic rock chapter of well this felt like a this felt like um seeing a weather report showing us how the origins of several big storms and how they start over the sahara and crawl, crawl across the the atlantic and and you know like all the ingredients for the formula are there and half the time i couldn't think is this prologue or is this prologue or is this aftermath I mean, am I, am, is this a post-mortem? And I was part of the pre-mortem, you know, because there's so <laughs> much of this. So much of this was stuff that start that really started brewing, um, you know, as, as 76 became 77, really. Yeah. All those bands yeah. that, 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 you know, that were part of this churn. During that time when I told you I saw Bob Seger four times, I would have seen Bob Seger five times if I hadn't gotten a flu. Uh, in February '76, <laughs> that's he in in of all those of all the multiple artists that I saw who I wanted to see, he was the one that I did not try to see any but the last of those five of those four times. But, but I mean, you could pay. I did eventually, and that's the thing. I look at I look at how those bands came along, and then every one of them I saw as a headliner, and none of them I was at. REO probably is the closest to, to me being a, a big, a decent fan of. That's but REO none of them were like my favorite. Yes, REO Speedwagon. But all of those bands came came along as part of the same churn. Yeah, the, the know, late 70s classic rock, corporate rock, you know, arena yeah. rock uh, explosion. And, you know, Bob Seger could have been mentioned in this chapter because, because he was so – his song um, – Oh, whatever the old time rock and roll. I can't remember if yeah. it's, I can't yeah. separate old his old time rock, rock and roll from Billy Joel's, yeah. but it's it's yep. um, uh, was business. a big part of the Tom Cruise Rick, risky business. Yeah, so yeah, could have, I wondered about that. Yeah, easily could have put found his yeah. way into this chapter, and and Bob Seger's one of those guys that Dave Marsh would always give five stars to his albums in the Rolling Stone Record Guide, and I would dutifully go out and buy them and dutifully. Pre- try and try and try to like that stuff i think that's the source of my beef with bruce springsteen was i felt like i was supposed to like it and i really 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 tried and it and it just never connected and it turned it it curdled and became hate so apologies again to all the springsteen fans i might have alienated last time but hopefully we've been gentle to all the steve perry uh, don henley uh chicago and foreigner fans this week (laughs) there you go you know, it's kind of and Ahmed and Ahmed Erdogan too. Uh, yes, and the late great Ahmed Erdogan, who was, <laughs> who was moved to tears by foreigners. I want to know what love is, and maybe he sincerely was, or maybe he was just yeah. sincerely thinking, "Wow, is this thing going to make me a lot of money?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, even more. 
<laughs> Indeed, just what he needed, just what he needed. So for Ed Legg, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Can't Slow Down, how 1984 became Pop's blockbuster year by Michelangelo Matos, and we're coming close to the end. We're getting closer and closer yep. to um, the Live Aid explosion that's going to cover it. And Michelangelo has promised to come on and discuss that with us, so uh, I'm going to try to book that, and hopefully we can line that up. So for Hell Ed Legg, yeah. I'm Nate Wilcox. Thanks for listening. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes back Mark Blake to discuss his new book on 70s album cover designers Hypnosis. The people who created iconic album covers for Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and many more. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.